This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, 200,000. Mrs. Corliss Henry was my nursing instructor in the 1960s. Her wealth of knowledge, quiet presence, and fairness were her strengths. She will be missed. My father, Larry Rathgab, was an amazing man. He was very proud of his military career. He was proud of his NASCAR career. Most of all, he was proud of his family and his friends. I'm watching people who are not taking this seriously. They're partying, they're visiting everybody, and I lost the love of my life. He just looked at me and he said, Mel, I never knew a love like this before, and I love you so much. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The country has crossed an unwanted milestone. 200,000 Americans have died of coronavirus, a staggering amount of death in six months. We were told the pandemic's toll would never rise this high, but now we confront a number almost beyond comprehension. This pandemic, though, is not a tragedy of large numbers. It's the story of Kaylin Dillard, a Louisiana mom who died at 29 before she could meet her new baby. It's the story of Tom Slade, a high school teacher in Mississippi, and Laura McManus, who worked for her county in North Carolina and who died of COVID-19 the same day as her husband, David. Their 14-year-old daughter is now an orphan. Marie Birnbaugh was a medical assistant at a clinic in Missouri. Mark Remolino was an inspector for the New York City Fire Department. The pandemic has cut through the nation's heart, killing people everywhere, in every line of work, certain communities harder than others. It's the story of lives lost, families destroyed, the promise of the future cut short. It's the story of Mark Anthony Urquiza, who died of coronavirus in June, and whose daughter Kristen channeled sadness and anger into a campaign for a better response. It began at the Arizona State Capitol and continued at the Democratic National Convention, Kristen, what did it mean to share your dad and his obituary with such a broad audience? My dad, I believe, uh, was, you know, cut short. His life was cut short and robbed of his best golden years. He had yet to retire. He was looking forward to that. And it pained me so much, not just from losing him, but knowing, you know, how much life he still had left to lead to know that he doesn't have the opportunity to do that. And so in being able to share him with the world, I do feel as if his spirit is able to be with us. And it's just, it's just lovely to know that people are thinking about this pandemic in a different way and part of that has to do with having the opportunity to uh, know my dad a little bit better. Because sometimes when we hear numbers, we can get numb. But when we know that it's Kristen's dad, that makes a difference. That's exactly right. And part of what inspired me to speak out in the beginning, um, thinking about those numbers becoming statistics and losing the humanity behind it, 
Um, I'd been inspired from a young age uh, of the activism around the AIDS memorial quilt and the AIDS pandemic in the late 80s and early 90s. And one of um, the reasons why I launched Mark by COVID was to get at that human aspect to help us know Kristen's dad, Fiona's mom, Rosie's brother, and really start to have the conversation about what we're losing as a result of how we're handling this crisis. You began at the Democratic National Convention by telling us that Mark Anthony Orkiza should be here and isn't. It didn't have to be this way, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I have always approached my communications as direct. And, you know, we don't have to look very far to see other examples of how this pandemic could have been. Every other country in the world has, at least the ones that are similar to us in size and economy, have lower numbers, lower deaths. And my dad was one of the unlucky ones that not only caught the virus, um, but passed away. And, you know, his probability of catching it is, and everyone's probability of catching it is so much increased uh, by our unwillingness to have a coordinated data-driven response to this pandemic. What has the response to what you decided to do in going public with his obituary been? It's been overwhelming. Uh, my you know, immediate family has been so lockstep with me from day one. And that's part of what was really instrumental in allowing me to raise my voice because I saw the anger and frustration that my aunts and uncles and my cousins had about my father's untimely death. They felt robbed too. Uh, but since then, I have uh, connected with countless others who share similar stories to me. Uh, they you know, tell me what happened and I am touched to my core, not only in their love and willingness to try and ensure that their parents or loved ones didn't die in vain, but in their courage in finding their voice and wanting to work with me to help, you know, elevate their stories and, and ask for accountability. And so it's become almost a virtuous cycle where we are helping one another and building community during a time in which it's really hard to be in community with people. That's been, I've heard for families, some of the most difficult experiences with this, that you, you, you grieve alone. You're exactly right. Uh, the constraints that the pandemic has put on us uh, means that the ways that we traditionally mourn are no longer available. Um, and one of the things that we're working on together is a week of mourning, the first uh, week of October, to help create um, you know, an opportunity for collective mourning um, as well. We're very much still in the thick of the pandemic, but we are still experiencing great loss and grief that needs to have its time in the sunlight. And we need to find ways to recognize that and honor those that have already passed. Kristen Urquiza, whose father, Mark Anthony Urquiza, died in June of coronavirus. Our chief medical correspondent here at ABC News, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, is with us now. Every story, like Kristen's, is heartbreaking. How are you thinking about this terrible milestone? Well, I think when I hear a number like 200,000, 
US COVID related deaths, the first thing I think of as a physician and as a practicing doctor is that's not just a number, that's not just a statistic. Uh, those are actual lives that have been cut short, oftentimes alone, due to this virus. And therefore, many, many people who are directly affected by their deaths. Uh, I also think it's really important as we hear this number and as we hit other numbers to absolutely not succumb to this concept of psychic um, numbness and, and become accustomed to this or acceptant of it. Uh, this is an unprecedented and historic global health crisis. And we have to remember that as those numbers go up, that those are real people. And so it's very, very personal. The concept of so much death in a very short period of time is is mind-boggling. I mean, there's no post in the traumatic stress that the country must be feeling. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, uh, you know, when you look at that number in a short period of time and you look at projected rates of where we are going and where we could be going, I think that it is terrifying and uh, it's not a competition. It's not a competition between COVID and lives lost due to cancer or heart disease or suicide or opioid overdoses. They are all tragic. They are all a crisis in a public health setting, in a clinical medical setting, uh, and in a personal societal setting. Uh, they are all emergencies, if you will. But uh, this, is, this is something that no one could have imagined a year ago that we would be in, in this position. And I think it is appropriate at this milestone, but also really every day to take notice of that and uh, to try everything in our power to slow that curve, to stop it, to turn it around, uh, and to never give up. No one wants that more than than the nation's healthcare workers. And, and I'm struck, Jen, that so many of the 200,000 dead probably spent the last moments of their lives with a nurse or a doctor or a clinician in a hospital. That has to be a lot to bear. Should we be worried about the nation's healthcare workers? I think we should be worried about our healthcare workers. Uh, but by the way, I think we should always be worried about our healthcare workers. Uh, Aaron, I just spoke to a nurse in a Connecticut emergency room just last week who was put on COVID duty during the spring um, when the, the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut were on fire. And she told me that she was holding iPhone, iPhones, iPads up uh, to relatives so that they could see or even try to communicate with their loved one right before they died. That is not just a, a news headline. That happened. Uh, that is still happening. And I think it is inconceivable for us to wrap our minds around that concept. So Will there be PTSD on the part of nurses and anyone who works in a hospital and physicians and paramedics because of that? Absolutely. And that is a reminder to us that we have to take care of mental health 
as much as we do physical health because the checkup from the neck up is just as important as uh, finding a cure to this virus. Uh, we won't be able to continue taking care of all of the other run-of-the-mill medical issues that, that have not stopped, by the way, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, if we don't take care of the mental trauma that this virus is inflicting on our healthcare workers. It is so stunning to, to hear you talk like that. And when we were at the beginning of this, talking about a cruise ship or a single nursing home in Washington state, could you have imagined that we would be here? I mean, did it have to be this way? I think, you know, could, could I have imagined it? No, I don't think anyone who's alive today could have imagined this. In, in its scope, in its magnitude, in its duration, uh, in its impact that crosses, crosses lines and boundaries, uh, definitely. It's not just a medical and scientific and public health story. Uh, it, it literally has infiltrated every sphere of our country, of our day-to-day -day existence, of the world. Um, no one could have foreseen that. Um, I definitely was one of those people. Uh, however, it felt different to me uh, than any other medical story that I've covered over the last 14 years. Um, and, you know, I think that in terms of whether we could have done anything differently, um, looking back and learning from our responses and actions and mistakes and what we did well, what we didn't do well, that's part of clinical medicine. We do that regularly. Uh, that's the only way we can learn to take care of people better. Um, but also this story is, is not going anywhere and the virus is not going anywhere. And as much as we want it to, uh, it is not slowing down. Um, it's going through its ups and downs, uh, but it is telling us that it it's here for the long haul. And so we have to be able to do two things, Aaron, at the same time and do it quickly and efficiently, which is deal, deal with what's happening today, um, keep an eye on the horizon of what may be happening tomorrow, while at the same time looking back and figuring out how we could have done things better so that we don't repeat the same mistakes in the future. To that end, what gives you hope right now? Well, I will never lose hope in the power of science um, and in the human spirit. Um, going from the bedside to the lab or from the office or clinic uh, to the major research center is something that I think is powerful and it can save lives and it can make this pandemic better. Um, I think this is not the first time that the human race has been challenged in every way, uh, and we have persevered. I think in the face of medical crises, a lot of times profound resilience uh, emerges, even from areas or people or groups that 
you may not have expected it from. So that right now uh, I cling to not just as a medical journalist, but as a practicing physician and as a human being who's living through this just like everyone else is. Um, you know, my brother, who's also a physician, had COVID in March um, that he got by taking care of patients in his uh, Bronx hospital. I personally know five people who died of COVID-19 complications. I think that this is very personal to me, but it's personal to everyone because everyone has felt the effects of this virus in one way or another. And, um, you know, I couldn't do my job as a doctor or a medical journalist if I didn't have hope in the power of medicine, in the power of science, and in the power of the human spirit. Dr. Jennifer Ashton, our chief medical correspondent. And I want to bring in Dr. Todd Ellerin, an ABC News contributor and director of infectious diseases at South Shore Health near Boston. 200,000 deaths. It's an almost unfathomable number. I mean, I, I, I think you summed it up perfectly. It's unfathomable. It's, it's tragic um, to think that we in the United States have less than 5% of the global population and that we've had around 20% of the global deaths have been have come from the United States. One in every five deaths from COVID-19 come from the United States. That's not okay. And I think that, you know, one of the issues also just with the numbers are that there's something called psychic numbing. When really, when you hear about the first death, you can wrap your head around that. But once you start hearing about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths, it it you it's difficult to process there becomes something called compassion fatigue so when we're hearing day after day that there's a thousand deaths in the United States it almost becomes something that you're just used to hearing and and we have to do everything possible to get those numbers down no matter what it takes because when you have a thousand deaths a day or even at this point if we're having you know 750 or whatever the number is today it's it's too many. We, we, you know, you look at other countries like, you know, South Korea currently, they have hundreds of cases. That's all. A couple of hundred cases. They may be six times smaller than us, but if you multiply 200 times six, that's 1,200 cases. Today, we have over 50,000 cases. And when you have this many cases, you're going to see deaths. So whatever it takes, we have to test more. We have to isolate more. We have to get patients earlier treatment. And we have to protect the vulnerable. We have to double down on whatever we're doing because too many cases, too many deaths. What about the treatment options for those that are coming down with COVID now? You've obviously learned a thing or two in the last six months. How good an outcome can someone reasonably expect? There's no question we're doing better from a treatment perspective. Patients with COVID, even severe COVID infection, are are, are doing better than when we first uh, met this virus. Uh, you, you've heard that a certain type of steroid, dexamethasone, and either other types of steroids have shown that there's significant benefit and even mortality uh, reduction, which means you give it in certain types of patients who require oxygen or on a ventilator, and they survive longer. We have antivirals now as well. Uh, 
uh, remdesivir that has been shown to, um, you know, uh, improve recovery time. And the hope is, is that with this combination and the fact even our critical care um, experts have, have shown that, you know, we're no longer trying to intubate patients as quickly as possible uh, in order to help prevent the spread of infection. We know that now we can use not certain types of non-invasive ventilation to, to, to improve patients' oxygenation. All of these steps, positioning patients in a prone position, which means their belly down or, or on their sides, we know that also increases oxygenation. All of these things are helping uh, uh, keep more of our patients alive. But don't get me wrong, for patients who are elderly or have severe comorbidities, this can still be a deadly disease. So I imagine hospitals, not just yours, but around the country, are still on something of a war footing in anticipation of flu season and a, another potential wave of this. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're really concerned about the collision of these two viruses, two epidemics, uh, you know, and we know that uh, from early studies in Wuhan, uh, individuals who got influenza and COVID-19 at the same time did particularly poor. Roughly 5% of, of the patients that were initially described had, had both of those infections, and um, it's a problem. So we have to do as much as we can in order to prevent patients from getting either infection. The good news is that the masks, physical distancing, hand washing, uh, and you know avoiding crowds and things, those will prevent not just uh, influenza and COVID-19, but all of the other respiratory viruses that we're not even talking about. There are others. Uh, and remember, you know, this is a good time to say you need to get your flu shot. More important this year than any year in the past. Dr. Todd Ellerin from South Shore Health in Weymouth, Massachusetts. And coming up, the race for a vaccine when this ABC News special continues. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19. 200,000. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The nation has crossed an unsought milestone in its battle against COVID-19. 200,000 Americans have died, 
a staggering toll, two and a half times the number of U.S. service members who died in battle in the Vietnam and Korean Wars combined. Families across the country are grieving, and there is still no cure. Scientists, though, are trying. Dr. Paul Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. There have been plenty of promises and plenty of debate about the reality of those promises. Doc, what's the real progress regarding a potential vaccine? The progress has been remarkable. I mean, we just had this virus in hand at the beginning of this year, and now we're already talking about eight companies being in phase three trials, meaning doing large prospective placebo-controlled trials of 30,000 or more people, which is remarkable. I mean, you have to, to have already shown at least some evidence that this the concepts that we had to make this vaccine made sense. Then you had to you know, produce it to the point that you could do these kinds of trials. I think it's remarkable that we are where we are. Now we just have to see whether these vaccines really are safe and whether they really do work. So when the National Institutes of Health tells us that a vaccine could be available to most Americans by this coming spring or summer, that's a reasonable assessment? It's a reasonable assessment. It's it's optimistic. It's aspirational. Hopefully it'll happen. I mean, we're all counting on the fact that the trials that showed that these vaccines could induce sort of high levels of virus neutralizing antibodies means that they'll be protective when tested in a, in a natural situation. But you never know till you do the studies. So we're cautiously optimistic. So are you confident then that the drug companies that are in phase three clinical trials have been sufficiently transparent? I think they're going to have no choice but to be transparent when they submit their vaccines for approval by the FDA, even under emergency use authorization, you have to see all those data. The people that make those decisions, including the uh, FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, has to see all those data. It's not to their advantage to misrepresent their products. I mean, because once the vaccine is given to millions or tens of millions of people, if there's a problem, it'll show. Or if it's ineffective, it'll show. So there's, there's no hiding in the end. So it sounds like you're confident in the integrity of the process and Americans should be similarly confident? Yes. If, if this plays out the way it's played out for the last 70 years, which is that you allow the phase three trials to go to completion, that you're completely straightforward about what the data are in those trials, that the groups that normally review them, like the Data Safety Monitoring Board, which usually oversees these trials, the, the FDA, including the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, is, is, is looking carefully at these data, then then I think the American public is, is being well served. There's always the possibility that it gets politicized, but if it gets politicized, it's going to be obvious because the thing about both the Data Safety Monitoring Board and the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee is those aren't political committees. Those people on that committee aren't associated with the government and they aren't associated with the pharmaceutical industry. So if you, you hear their honest assessment and then you hear the government going against that honest assessment, then I think the government's going to have trouble convincing people to get these vaccines. Dr. Paul Offit at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. The pandemic has taken lives and livelihoods, and so we want to turn to ABC's chief business and economics correspondent, Rebecca Jarvis. As if we needed any more than our own collective experience, Rebecca, the Federal Reserve has made clear COVID-19 has and will continue to have an adverse effect on the American economy. Yes, Aaron. So while economic activity has picked up, housing, in fact, is back where it was before the crisis. And some of the economy has recovered faster than expected. But overall, if you look at the economy, it is below where it was in January of this year. And the path ahead is highly uncertain, especially when you think about jobs. 
it, between March and April, the U.S. economy shed 22 million jobs. And at this point, we have recovered roughly half of those jobs. But as the crisis, as the pandemic extends, and as that uncertainty continues to unfold, we've seen a number of small businesses, for example, close up shop. Yelp says that they believe about 100,000 small businesses since March have closed permanently. Those types of things lead to more permanent job losses, such that some people who may have left jobs in March thinking that they were furloughed are now not temporary job losses, but permanent job losses. And we're also seeing it from big companies, which were able to withstand some of the early shocks that the pandemic made in the system. Now they're making more permanent choices about letting percentages of their workforces go. And and while you might hear uh, a company letting 2% or 5% of their workforce go, when you see that multiplied, by lots of companies making those decisions, it becomes a longer term question about recovering fully the jobs that were lost in the pandemic. I wanted to ask about something we keep hearing about when things get back to normal. Will we recognize what that is or has COVID permanently altered the American economy? You know, it's a really interesting question because a lot of companies, again, the ones that can can manage to do it, Facebook, Twitter, Google, they've told their employees don't expect to come back to an office until late 2021. And in some cases, they're telling their employees, you may never have to come back to an office. But anybody who's listening right now, uh, maybe you're working from home as you listen to this, there are plenty of people out there who aren't enjoying working from home. I certainly am enjoying it. Um, I think it, it it's it's improved my life in many ways. But there are plenty of people who see that as, uh, as something they're not interested in doing. So it's we always, in cases of extreme recessions being a big one, we always kind of think, well, this is the new normal. We're never going to go back to the old way. And we tend to, uh, as a culture and a society, we tend to swing back eventually to that old way of behavior. For example, um, you know, in the financial crisis in 2008, there was this thinking that no one would ever, the consumer would never go out and spend money again. They'd never buy houses again. Well, guess what? Home buying right now is up dramatically. So we, we, we have this tendency to believe that nothing will ever be the same again. And in actuality, things do return. But what I'll say is that for those 100,000 small businesses that have closed, they may come back in different formats, but they're not coming back as the same small business. And there are plenty of small business owners who they may not have filed for bankruptcy in this crisis. Instead, they might have just decided that it's completely untenable. If you look at the typical restaurant, they're basically the equivalent of, of going paycheck to paycheck in terms of their finances. So they might have two weeks worth of finances on hand to continue going, but if they're serving 25% of the people or 10% of the people they were serving in January, it's really, really difficult to make ends meet that way. Rebecca Jarvis is our chief business and economics correspondent. Deaths from coronavirus in the United States have now surpassed 200,000, a number Americans were told we would never see. The virus exploded in this country later than it did in others, but it has never been fully reined in. Since April, the country's average daily total of COVID cases has never dropped below 20,000. 
And in an election year, the question is whether voters will hold the president and other elected leaders accountable. Our political director, Rick Klein, is here along with Galen Druk from our partners at 538. But I want to begin with our Karen Travers, our White House correspondent here at ABC News. Karen, the president conceded to Bob Woodward. He downplayed the virus. But he later told our George Stephanopoulos in a recent ABC News town hall he upplayed it. What does that mean? Essentially, he's saying that he took more aggressive action early on than he's getting credit for, and that at the time, things he did, of course, he always cites the travel restrictions on China as the key thing to keep the virus out. And it's something he's been criticized for, because, of course, there weren't similar restrictions uh, for some time then on flights coming in for Europe, and also just the spread that was already happening here in the United States. So it was an interesting way of the president trying to spin this. He's still insisting he did and downplay it when, of course, we hear him in that audio recording with journalist Bob Woodward admitting he was deliberately downplaying it. So now he's getting past that and saying, upplaying it, that he took action and he says that action was very strong. Rick, the president says hyperbolic things all the time. At this point, so close to the election, does it matter anymore? I don't think there's any new information that's going to convince voters about Donald Trump one way or the other. But the way that it matters is that we see this in our polls. If people are focused on COVID-19 and the response to that, that's bad news for, for Donald Trump and his re-election chances. If people are focused on the economy and the economic recovery, that's potentially very good news for the president. So the, I, I think his continued uh, harping on certain aspects of it uh, could hurt his chances. If we continue to talk about it, he is banking now his re-election strategy on the country moving beyond this crisis, thinking that it's done. As he says now that we're, we're rounding the turn, we're, we're, we're headed back toward uh, normalcy. That's not how people are living their lives at this moment. If it is increasingly as we get into October and November, that's the conversation that the president wants to have. But I, I don't think people are going to make, make up their minds in a new way based on things that the president says now about COVID or anything else. And Galen, is the president onto something, though, when he talks about wanting full football stadiums and he questions the merits of masks? I mean, are the, the failures of American government on coronavirus as potent an issue now as maybe several months ago? Well, is he onto something? Of course, I am not a public health expert, and I think most public health experts would tell you that uh, he's not onto something when he talks about crowding people into spaces during a pandemic. But it's clear that also the public doesn't think that the president generally has the right idea on the pandemic. If you look at the polling today, the president is net negative 16 with the American public on his handling of coronavirus. That's pretty bad. As Rick was saying, when you compare that to his rating on the economy, he's about even or maybe even up to a positive five, right? So more Americans approve of him on the economy than disapprove. On coronavirus, vastly more Americans disapprove of how he's handled it. And that's been the case essentially since we reached 10,000 deaths in America, right? As we went up to 10,000 deaths, the very beginning of the pandemic, Americans were actually approving of his response and, and his approval went up overall. But from those relatively early days, he's been falling and falling and falling. You know, his nadir with the public was around negative 20. He's improved a little bit because we've also seen just in general that daily cases have gone down in the United States somewhat recently, although it's still at a relatively high level. So as Rick says, if he can sort of focus Americans' attention on an economic recovery or some other issue like unrest in American cities, law and order, et cetera, you know, perhaps cynically, that's to his advantage. But 
Americans by and large are still not living their normal lives, right? I'm speaking to you from my bedroom. So to the extent that Americans can be persuaded that the pandemic is over, I'm skeptical. So, Rick, if he's going to try and pivot away from this, does the calendar let him do it or or can Joe Biden bring it right back on the debate stage? Well, it'll be fascinating to know where we are in terms of COVID-19, in terms of the economic recovery when it comes to uh, November. People are already starting to vote. Uh, the debate season is is almost upon us. And so in some ways, people are solidifying their perceptions now. But we have seen some movement still in the numbers. And if people feel like COVID-19 has passed and whatever they think of the president's judgment, that he's the better candidate to, to lead us on the way forward, that's a much different election than if we're still in the throes of a uh, of a pandemic, uh, the, the the way that he is sort of gambling so much of his presidency on on a cure, on a vaccine, I think is fascinating. Uh, if he if he was able to 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 claim victory in the the war against COVID right before the election, does that change minds? Potentially, yes. We've seen enough movement in the numbers and, and enough vulnerabilities potentially in Joe Biden's coalition. Uh, as a snapshot, now it's hard to see how President Trump overcomes this, but that's not how we live, and that's not how voters vote. Rick Klein, Galen Druk, Karen Travers will return our focus to the lives we lost. 200,000 is not just a number. ABC's Michelle Franzen now with the stories of some of the people we've lost to COVID-19. It's a number hard to fathom. 200,000 Americans who didn't survive coronavirus, a death toll that keeps sounding during this pandemic. Within those dire figures, there are the faces and stories of the lives lost. Five-year-old kindergartner Skylar Herbert from Detroit wanted to grow up to be a dentist. Her mom, a police officer, and her dad, a firefighter, were on the front lines in the battle to save lives. Margit Feldman died at the age of 90 from coronavirus after surviving the Holocaust when she was a teen. She moved to the U.S. after being liberated from a Nazi concentration camp in Germany and spent her life educating younger generations about the Holocaust. I can't say it is my pleasure, but I can say it is my duty to be here with you today and to remember my past. Army veteran Larry Rathgab of Michigan died at age 90, serving his country in uniform and also through innovation. After being part of General Douglas MacArthur's motor pool and honor guard, Rathgab later went on to work for Chrysler and then NASCAR, going down in racing history as lead engineer for the team that helped build the first race car to reach 200 miles per hour. Corliss Henry was 95 from New Jersey and a pioneer in the healthcare profession. She became the first black nurse on staff at the Mullenberg Hospital and later became a teacher. Mrs. Corliss Henry was my nursing instructor in the 1960s. Her wealth of knowledge, quiet presence, and fairness were her strengths. She will be missed. High school coach Paul Logan from North Central High School in Indianapolis died in April, early on in the outbreak. The 57-year-old was an all-American linebacker at the University of Indianapolis before encouraging others to give their all. The one thing I want people to know about my dad is how he always put others first. His son Michael on how he wants his dad to be remembered. And I can't thank him enough for the childhood he gave us and the legacy he left. Albert Barber was a preacher and a musician living in Detroit with his wife, Latressa. She says he went to get a haircut in March, just days before the lockdown. He died in April. The doctor at Pontiac General used her personal cell phone to face, allow him to FaceTime me. 
to talk to me and I was able to pray with him before they put him on a ventilator. She said then, when the death toll was just starting to rise in the U.S., she didn't think people were taking the safety measures seriously. Just a few profiles of the husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, friends, family, and co-workers lost so far due to this pandemic. ABC's Michelle Franzen. The pace of coronavirus may have slowed considerably, but deaths are still trending up in certain states. We may not all know someone who has died or even someone who has become sick, but this virus affects all of us. As together we mourn the 200,000, we can also mind the advice of the experts that we hope will lead us to healthier days ahead. I'm Aaron Katursky. You've been listening to an ABC News special. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.